episode 12 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And today we're going to close out the horror, early horror remake chapter. Now, in the past couple episodes, I've had some fantastic guests to talk about some remakes and some ones that they particularly wanted to talk about, and we've gone in-depth on those. Today is more of a recap and hitting on those big remakes that we haven't talked about, um, talking about how the remake maybe got initiated, how it got started, and is it necessary, and just talking a little bit about each film. So without further ado, if you'll open your books to chapter 3, page 3, we'll get started. Now, a lot of people like to get into specifics when it's ta- when we're talking about remakes. Things like, you know, is this an adaptation or a remake? Is it just based off a book? Especially the ones we're talking about today have been based on something else, some form of literature. Now, my point and my pushback against this is that, yes, a lot of these are based on literature. And yes, a lot of times the remakes are closer to the source material than the original. But here's the thing. In a lot of these cases, um, you'll find that not only do they have to get rights to the, you know, to adapt the literature, they also have to get the rights to the original film or the remake rights to be able to remake a film. Because once something is introduced into copyright and into the film world, there's kind of an expectation that if something comes after it, that it is a remake of that film. And I think that's a fair assessment. If you want to go on the, you know, if you want to go down the path of it, 2017 and you know Pet Cemetery 2019 are new adaptations. Go right ahead. Myself, I always lean towards if there was a previous film adaptation, I'm gonna say it was a remake. So you think along whatever lines you want. That's the great thing about this in horror and movies in general is we can all draw a hard line in the sand in what we believe in. I often am not drawing very hard lines in the sand either on genre or classification or anything like that. But I know some people like that, and you should be able to enjoy that too. Now, one of the big questions is, are these remakes necessary? Has there been enough time from the original to constitute one? Are there enough changes or updates for the modern times? Now, remakes aren't necessarily this American invention, but it seems to happen so much in Hollywood, and especially later in the aughts. Now, of course, something like Bollywood, there are tons of remakes and things like that as well. But as far as remaking your own films, tends to happen a lot in America. You know, for to remake an American film, and of course to remake other films in other languages, because according to Hollywood, a lot of times, if a film's in another language, you just can't understand it, and it's not going to sell. So, whatever they're thinking of there along those lines. But no, we see it in other countries. You see something like in Indonesia, um, where we get things like Satan's Slave, and the Queen of Black Magic getting remakes. I'm wondering if Lady Terminator might be next on that list, but that's a topic for another day. Those fall under more of the modern remakes. A lot of times we ask the same questions are, are these remakes just cash grabs to try to, you know, cash in on a name and the fan base that comes along with that name? I don't necessarily think so with these early remakes. I think a lot of the times we have filmmakers who are very interested in doing their own thing with a classic. And a lot of cases that have reverence for the classic, just like John Carpenter did with the original thing from another world. I don't think it's that easy to say these early ones are just kind of cash grabs. Now, when we get back into the 90s and the aughts, you can kind of tell that 
you know, there's a difference. A lot of times here early on, we have these proven filmmakers put in positions to remake these films, mostly from the 50s is when we're seeing the source material come from. And a lot of times they're enthusiastic about the project and they're, they're wanting to put their own stamp on the project and do something new in their way while staying true to the original. I think what you have in the 90s and aughts is a lot of times you get these young filmmakers who haven't done a whole lot, and I feel like they're kind of at the mercy of the studios. It's more like, hey, we need to make money on this, so we need to check these boxes. So, yeah, it's kind of a tricky situation there. It feels like maybe anything, any kind of love or admiration or respect they had for the originals was kind of snuffed out by the studio system, which is a very bleak way to look at it. But something that's hard for me with this first wave of remakes is that I'm not the biggest fan of those cheesy 1950s sci-fi films. That particular brand of, you know, sci-fi horror has never really struck a chord with me, and I think a lot of that has to do with they were targeted towards children. There's a lot of stuff in there. Now, I'm, I'm not saying something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, that's definitely a much mature film. When we're talking, like, Invaders from Mars... In general, things like them and Invaders from Mars and stuff were definitely targeted at children. That was the demographic for horror at that time. Horror had went through many changes up to this period. You know, it was very serious in the pre-code days, and we got some great films there. And then, you know, you get closer to wartime, and you're getting much more goofier films, other than people like Val Luton. And then you get in the 50s, and we're all worried about the atomic bomb, and it's shifted to sci-fi. So. I don't really have the nostalgia for those types of films. But what we end up seeing a lot of times is that these films get more vicious and mature and they are brought up to contemporary audiences, and that's especially what we see with a lot of these early on ones. And certainly the ones later on that, you know, people are either... I think there's two schools of thoughts to the later remakes, you know, the more modern remakes. Either you amp the violence and gore up to, you know, 11 in order to try to get, like, an unrated release when you put it out on video. That was a big thing in the aughts, uh, if you weren't familiar, to go to the store and you see unrated, you know, the uncut version. That was a huge thing. A lot of times it'd be, like, one or two minutes more of footage. A huge marketing ploy. Or the other side where you're trying to doll it down to a PG-13 audience and be able to get teenagers in there to watch your usually not good movies. But that's, that's probably about enough of my old man yelling at clouds. Let's go ahead and start getting into the movies themselves. We're going to start off with an interesting one because this is a very early remake. Now, this is not going to be an all-extensive, all-exhaustive list of early remakes. There are so many remakes left and right. These are more the ones that I feel are important to the horror genre and the ones that I chose to talk about, really. So this first one is House of Wax. Let's get in a little bit, and I'm going to start off on all these by getting in a little bit of how the remake came about. With House of Wax, Warner Brothers was impressed with the success of the low-budget B-movie adventure film, Buona Devil, that released in 1952 because it had these cool 3D effects, and I think it did pretty well at the box office because of that. So they decided to dig into their back catalog and remake the Mystery of the Wax Museum using this new 3D technology. 
They enlisted Andre de Toth to direct, and de Toth was blind in one eye and was not able to experience the 3D effects, which kind of an interesting choice, right? He's directing a 3D film at a time when 3D is not very familiar and he can't really see the effects himself. Well, I want to read this quote from star Vincent Price, giving his thoughts on the director choice. When they wanted a director for a 3D film, they hired a man who couldn't see 3D at all. Andre de Toth was a very good director, but he really was the wrong director for 3D. He'd go to the rushes and say, Why is everybody so excited about this? It didn't mean anything to him. But he made a good picture, a good thriller. He was largely responsible for the success of the picture. The 3D tricks just happened. There weren't a lot of them. Later on, they threw everything at everybody. So that's Price's stance on this. He thought Detoth did a great job at making a film, but he had no interest in the 3D, obviously because he could not see the 3D. Many critics, though, believe that him not being able to see the depth allowed him to focus on making a good film instead of just having characters tossing things left and right at the screen. So take that for what you will on House of Wax. Now, if you're not familiar with House of Wax and the broad overview for both films really is, you know, you have this this man, this artist who makes wax sculptures and he runs this wax museum. The wax museum is not doing good business. So we get um, his business partner who comes in and says, hey, we're going to burn down the place for the insurance money. The sculptor vehemently disagrees and doesn't want anything to happen to his creations. They fight. The business partner lights the building on fire anyway. And and our sculptor is caught in the fire. So he survives, but he's in a wheelchair, and he's his hands are messed up, and he presumably cannot do anything anymore, so he uses assistance to help him sculpt. Now, it's a broad-level overview of each film. Turns out as we're going down into it, we're kind of, people are starting to disappear and be murdered and trying to get to the bottom of it, really, is the core of this film. House of Wax 1953 was a remake of the 1933 film Mystery at the Wax Museum. And these were both based on the novel The Waxworks. In fact, 1953 House of Wax was going to be called The Waxworks, or at least it was under the working title of The Waxworks as it was going through production. If I can talk as far as, you know, because we want to talk about, is the remake worth it? I really don't like the tone of the 1933 film at all. It's just not really my style. Um, I think the opening is great, and there are certainly some creepy elements. But I think most of all, I just don't like Glenda Farrell in this movie. I find her incredibly grating, and she's pretty much the focus of the movie. And there's a, there's a weird thing with her and her boss. I don't want to get into that. I don't like her character at all. It's like they took the most annoying character they could and gave her the most annoying lines, and I've got nothing to say for that. Now, 1953, on the other hand, is one of my top three Vincent Price performances, and I love 1953. Yes, we ramp up kind of more of the violent nature of it, I guess. Same story for the most part, but here Vincent Price, we see much more Vincent Price than we do of Lionel Atwell in the first film. I like Lionel Atwell as an actor, and I like him in the first film. I do. Um, Vincent Price is just on another level. And when they're reopening the Wax Museum in the 1933 version, the difference is they're just doing the same kind of sculptures, 
1953 version, they're doing sculptures of like horrific events. So like a, you know, the Marie Antoinette beheading, like there's a guillotine and all that stuff. So that's pretty cool. I just like the feel and the vibe of the 1953 one better. And I think honestly, it improves the film. It takes out my least favorite part of the 1933 film. Those characters aren't in there at all. And I think it allows it to be a better film, in my eyes anyway. So I think it's absolutely worth it. The 3D, very gimmicky, but I've never watched it in 3D, really, so I can't really say. I think it's just a much better film at its core, and this is one of those rare occasions, I guess, when I prefer a beat-for-beat remake a lot more than the original. Now, it's not necessarily beat for beat, but it's the same basic story. I mean, they're going down the same lines. So those are my thoughts on House of Wax. If you haven't seen either of those early House of Wax films, um, I definitely recommend 1953 for sure. If you want to see the 1933, if you're into old Hollywood and all of that, it's worth watching. (sighs) Maybe it's just me that doesn't like Glenda Farrell's performance (laughs) in this film. But that, that's really what dropped the film down for me. I, it took me right out of it. So other than that, I think it's a solid film around the edges. There was also, I wanted to mention just really quick, I'm not going to get into this one, but we had a remake in 1963 of The Old Dark House. Now, I haven't seen this remake, so I can't really weigh, on, weigh in on if it's better than the original. I doubt it's better than the original, but I noticed that as I was doing some research, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that they did a remake of The Old Dark House. So. That might be worth checking out if you're a big Old Dark House fan. Or maybe not, really, if you don't want to see the original kind of changed. But anyway, wanted to throw that out there. Can't really speak on the remake, though. Now, the next big remake that I haven't talked about yet was released in 1982. And it's a remake of The Thing from Another World, which was based on the novella Who Goes There? And really... For all intents and purposes, The Thing from Another World is a very loose adaptation of who goes there. But you're seeing the pattern here with these films based on literature, right? Now, this has kind of like a storied production history. The Thing remake actually started its saga in the mid-1970s. Producers David Foster and Lawrence Terman wanted to do a more faithful adaptation of who goes there and pitched it to Universal. The screenwriters who held the rights to the original, though, declined, and Universal had to buy the rights from them. In 1976, in an interesting turn of events, Wilbur Stark, a producer and director, purchased the remake rights to 23 RKO pictures uh, from some Wall Street financiers who had no idea what to do with the rights. Now, he didn't pay them up front. Instead, they asked for a return on the films. Um, when the remakes were produced. So Universal already has the rights to, you know, the original screenplay, but here is the movie rights they need to go and get as well. So Universal turns around and snapped up the rights to the thing from another world from Stark, and he was listed as an executive producer on the film. Carpenter was approached in 76 to direct, but since he was an independent director, Universal opted to go with Toby Hooper, who was already under contract. Now, Toby Hooper and a writer had put together a treatment for this film, and the studio was not happy with the concept and moved on to other directing options. One of those was even John Landis. So there's kind of a who's who of, you know, 
70s and 80s mega directors when getting mentioned and lobbied about here for horror movies at least kind of the cream of the crop of the horror genre at the time now after all this the project was put on hold because they just could not find a director and could not find a way through but it would ramp back up after the success of Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979 and with Carpenter fresh off of his success with Halloween he was loosely attached to this film as director at first he thought you know it would be hard to surpass the original and didn't want to do it it was however suggested to him that maybe he read the novella first and see how he thought about it well carpenter instantly fell in love with the story he saw it as timely and something he could really relay to contemporary audiences to speak about the times and we all know carpenter especially in the 80s really likes to speak about the times so that kind of kick-started the whole project. It got him back on board and interested. And really, the rest is history of how this film came together. So, if we're going to talk about the thing from another world for a minute, I find it much better than a lot of its sci-fi contemporaries. And it's really quite different from a lot of films at the time, especially the ones I was re-watching for this or that I've watched before. But it's still not really one of my favorites. I think the characters are a lot better here than in a lot of these films at the time. The problem is it's just... It's like there's something there, but it just doesn't all click for me, and especially the monster. The monster is not not good in this, and I think Carpenter's been on record to say that he didn't find anything interesting about the monster in The Thing from Another Road either. So I'm not alone in there. But when we're talking about The Thing 1982... This is a case of a remake diverging pretty far from the original, as much as it could, while still being set in the same kind of setting. Not only is this the best remake, in my opinion, that's ever been made, it's also one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And it's funny that it does stick very close to the novella, where the original doesn't. And this is kind of a pattern we would see in more recent years, is these re-adaptations where they're sticking much closer to the source material, and a lot of times we get some better material out of them. Again, we take the thing from another world, which is fairly harmless, you know, as far as violence and stuff like that goes, and we ramp the violence all the way up. It's taken up several notches, and really kind of drags these 50 sci-fi films that are a lot of times are cheesy, kind of kicking and screaming into the future. This is a masterclass in sci-fi horror, though. And the original just can't compete at all for me. John Carpenter is a master himself, and this is one of his very best moments. One of his two very best films, in my opinion. So, you kind of get the idea of how I feel here. I definitely, with no reservations, lean towards the 1982 remake of The Thing. It's just better in every single way. And maybe having it be a classic and having seen it for so many years kind of tainted when I did finally go and watch The Thing from Another World. But The Thing from Another World is just so much duller when compared to The Thing. And it's very, it's very interesting, the approach, the different approaches. You know, in the, in the 51 version, it's kind of everyone against The Thing. And in the 82 version, you know, Carpenter said, it really reminded him, the novella did, of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. So he kind of used those elements to where everybody's kind of on edge and suspecting everyone, and 
everyone's a suspect, and no one's letting their guard down. And that's really one of the better things in the film. Sure, the creature is cool, but it's so much better to see all this paranoia and not know who's the thing and who who's a real person. And I won't belabor the point there. Just know that this remake absolutely needed to exist. It took a very interesting premise of a sci-fi film from the 50s and just took it into the 80s, spruced it up for the times, and really gave it the treatment that the book probably de- that the novella probably deserved from the start. Okay, let's go ahead and change gears, and I want to pivot to Invaders from Mars. So, Invaders from Mars is an interesting one. The original film that was released in 1953 is one of the most 50s films I've seen, and I don't mean that in a good way. It's pretty cheesy, and it's a clear product of the era. Now, this film was directed by William Cameron Menzies, who didn't really, hasn't really done anything else that I'm familiar with outside of... He did do the Shandu the Magician film, so that's something there. But when we're talking Invaders from Mars, I don't want to badmouth this thing. It just kind of exemplifies a little bit of that 50 sci-fi genericness that I don't really like. But it's not all bad. I mean, I like the first half of the film, really, if we're talking about it. The first half's pretty good. Um, there are some genuinely creepy moments. There's an especially creepy part with a little girl, which I think is a very chilling moment, especially for the time. The problem with Invaders from Mars, the original, is that in the second half... The military is all hands on deck. You know, the military believes the kid, and they're in here to go after these aliens. And I guess maybe I should set it up just a little bit and say that through the synopsis, you know, in the early hours of the night, young David McLean sees a flying saucer land and disappear into the sand dunes just beyond his house. Slowly, all of the adults, including... His once-loving parents begin to act strangely. That's a very good setup for this film. I mean, that's basically what's going on without giving too much away. And we do have aliens here, like I said. I think the alien designs are very campy. They're very 50s. They're very cheesy. That being said, I actually like them. I think they do have a lot of character to these aliens they create. My main issue, and I'll go back to what I was just talking about a little bit ago, the military stuff in the second half of this. A lot of the second half of this, we're just getting shots of tanks over and over, montages of tanks, and we're getting these military guys going through tunnels, and there's just not a lot of heart or creepiness to that second half of the film. I think if it would have maintained more of what was in the first half, just maybe this thing could have won me over. But it is corny, it is cheesy, that's going against it from the start. I just, the weird thing is, is that you kind of have a Body Snatchers scenario before the Invasion of the Body Snatchers film. And this was 53, so this was before Jack Finney's novel had come out. Again, I'm not sure where the Body Snatcher thing kind of originated, but this is kind of ahead of its time in that. Now, it does use a slightly different scenario, slightly slightly different means of going about this, but that's still something to chew on. At the end of the day, man... This film is just not very interesting in the second part of it, and the ending is my least favorite ending of all time. I think I've only mentioned this once (laughs) in my time podcasting, 
And that's because I'm not trying to spoil a lot of things. But the ending here, if you know anything about me, I'll take a movie down a few notches based just on this kind of ending. So you can take that as you will. That's just a personal thing. That's just something that's always bugged me. So I can't do anything about that. But we had a chance to get this revived. And this is my favorite kind of remake. We were talking with Nathan. Something that I think is a middle-of-the-road film. I don't think Invaders from Mars is a classic by any of the stretch of the imagination. We're taking this average kind of middle-of-the-road film, in my eyes anyway, and we're going to try to improve upon that. And let's put Toby Hooper at the helm. We'll see how well that worked out. Let's get into a little background on this before I go any further. So why was this film made? Well, Wade Williams, who I believe was a producer and owned a production company, um, initially acquired the rights to the original Invaders from Mars. He turned around and sold the remake rights for 50 times what he paid for the original. Now, that's a good day. That's a good day when you scoop up Invaders from Mars and you make 50 times your profit on it. This was in addition to the decent sum that he made off the original, including the TV and video sales. So Wade Williams knows what he's doing. Let's just say that. So we, we know who the real winner is here. It's not us, the viewers. It's Wade Williams. Uh, no, that's a little... I apologize. That's a little snarky. But let's, <laughs> let's continue on here. I couldn't find much else about the production on this one. But it was distributed by Canon Films, which was infamous for, let's say, overselling and under-delivering. They... Yeah. If you're familiar with Canon Films, and that may be something to go into in the future, because that's a pretty cool story about Canon Films. They were known for kind of yes, blowing a lot of smoke about how great and how grand their movies and the special f effects and all that stuff were, and then what you got was a lot lower budget than they were leading on. So, I'm not saying Canon Films are all bad, because you know, I happen to like Life Force a good deal, at least. Anyway. What we had here was Toby Hooper had a real chance to make this remake something special. But instead, this thing has a PG rating, which, again, this was 1986. So by this time, we're kind of all embroiled in that PG-13 rating that's coming through. I mean, I think we're talking 1984 for the PG-13. So this wasn't even PG-13. This was just straight up kind of taking the same level of content that was in that 50s. There's nothing wrong with that. Inherently, there's not. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go with a cheesy 1950s remake. And staying true to it is certainly one way, especially for the guy who made a film as violent as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I did not say bloody, but very violent. And something like Poltergeist. So... I don't know, I think he just had a really good chance here, but it just follows a lot of the beats of the original, and if we're talking about something later on, I don't like the alien design in this film at all. I much prefer the very basic design of the 50s. That might be a me thing, because I do often tend to go towards the simpler designs. These things are certainly something. I mean, they certainly look like 80s, style, gross, weird, deformed aliens, sure. They just don't hit with me. You can probably hear it by this point. I don't have a whole lot to say about either of these films. I think Hooper's is more generic 
in a lot of ways than the original because the original gives some a couple standout moments really while Hooper doesn't really give me a whole lot now we don't have the military montages as much but we still do have a lot of military action and they're not really doing anything <sighs> that movie's kind of a mess and at the end of the day I'm kind of I think I prefer I mean I definitely prefer the first half of 53 to all of 86 <laughs> So I don't know where I land on this thing, but really both are like one-time watches for me. Now there's probably some Invaders from Mars mega fans. If you're a huge fan of 50s horror or if you grew up with it, I'm sure you love Invaders from Mars or you at least like it a lot. And there's a lot to like there from 53. I, I just have a hard time even remembering anything from 86 and I did not watch it that long ago. It's just not that great of a movie. I hate to bash anything. Like I said, I don't think you could go wrong watching either of these just one time. But I think for a lot of horror fans, that's going to be it. So, not a whole lot to say. I don't want to continuously bash films. So let's go ahead and move on. The Fly. So, unfortunately for Invaders from Mars, I don't have a lot to say about it. And it gets, those two films get sandwiched in between The Thing and The Fly. Sorry, I'm just going by chronological order of the remake. I can't help it. But, on paper, now, let's talk about The Fly 58. Before I get into anything, let's talk about, let's sum up The Fly 1958. So, once again, uh, we have a director here that I'm not familiar with a ton of their work. And that is Kurt Newman. Industrialist Francois Delambre is called late at night by his sister-in-law, Helena Delambre, who tells him she has just killed her husband, Andre. Reluctant at first, she eventually explains to the police that Andre invented a matter transporter apparatus, and while experimenting on himself, a fly entered the chamber during the matter transference. So, synopsis out of the way, on paper, I should really love the fly. I do love a lot of films that Vincent Price is in, sure, and a lot of those were, you know, 50s, kind of cheesy films. Uh, but if we're talking Vincent Price in the 50s, I mean, I think there's a lot better to be had if we're not talking about. House of Wax or House on Haunted Hill, we can certainly have a conversation about The Tangler or The Bat, which I like either one better than this one. This is kind of my least favorite of his 50s horror film. And I didn't really expect that going in because I do really like the uh, other Vincent Price films of the 50s. I mean, and he does play a good part in this. I just never really got the appeal. So... That's kind of my, I don't have a whole lot to say about The Fly 1958, because I don't really like it. I think it's very cheesy. I think it's very over the top with how it depicts the, yes, and I am saying over the top, knowing full well what I'm about to say about the 86 remake. I get that. I just think the over the topness and the uncanniness in this film is very 50s and unbelievable, and I think it's very stereotypical for what a 50s horror film is, a 50s sci-fi horror film. I mean, there's an episode of R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour that basically spoofs this movie, and it's just ridiculous, and you can kind of see where it's coming from. I don't know. I just don't have a lot to say on the fly. Maybe one day I'll watch it again, and I'll like the fly a lot better. But I don't know. I just don't know. 
I just don't think it's so silly and it's primless. And that's coming, again, I just said that I liked the Tingler better. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on and talk about the actual remake with this one, though. I would say The Fly is worth at least a one-time watch. I think there's a lot of people, especially Vincent Price fans, that are going to like it out there. That being said, let's get on to a little bit of why this was made. In the early 1980s, screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue was approached to write an adaptation of The Fly from 1958. Producer Stuart Kornfeld was presented this idea, and he quickly agreed to help make it. They pitched the idea to Fox, who approved, and Pogue began to write a first draft. And with this, he initially wanted to stick close to the short story, but Kornfeld convinced him to draw out the transformation instead of having the fly monster created instantly. They go to pitch it to the executives, and they hated it, and initially withdrew. But... You know, after some negotiating, you know, Kornfeld kind of got in there and negotiated and they kind of made some deals and they agreed eventually to distribute if they could find another source to finance the film. They did not want to be completely footing the bill for this thing. Funny enough, the new producer would end up being Mel Brooks, who agreed to produce the film through his company. He really liked the script and just thought it was in need of a new writer to kind of bring it home. So Pogue was removed and a new writer was brought in. However, Brooks didn't like the new treatment and brought Pogue back in to polish the original. Cronenberg became the first choice as the director, but he was already working on Total Recall and wasn't available. The next target was Robert Bierman. This is where things get a little weird and a little sad, too. Bierman was a young British director. He was flown to L.A., but during pre-production, his daughter was actually killed in an accident, and he wouldn't be able to return to the project. You know, they had given him, Mel Brooks had given him a lot of time to kind of process things and deal with this, because it's not an easy thing, but after three months... You know, Bierman finally said, hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this project. You're going to have to move on. So that's a little bit of a sad footnote in The Fly. But interesting with that is with the tragedy, it actually paved the way for Cronenberg to come back. Because by this point, Cronenberg was pulled off of Total Recall and was offered the job again. He accepted and began extensive rewrites on Pogue's script. Cool thing was, even after everything and rewriting all this script, is that Cronenberg insisted that Pogue get a co-screenplay credit, as he couldn't have written the version that he wrote without Pogue. Last interesting little tidbit on this film is that John Lithgow was initially approached to star in this thing, but found the film too grotesque. And that is a bit of an understatement, but that would have been a completely different film with John Lithgow in there. So here we go again with The Fly, and this is another remake that cast a large shadow over its predecessor. And really for me, just like The Thing, this is another near-perfect film. And it's funny to think that these came from other films, which I think a lot of people would think are not anywhere near up to snuff as the remakes. Now, of course, people do love the originals, and there are definitely people out there that will praise the originals, for sure. 
but I don't know how many horror fans are out there that are going to tell you the original thing from another world and the original fly are better than these two remakes. That kind of goes back to the theory and kind of what Nathan and I were talking about last episode of taking something that's maybe not perfect and not sacred and remaking that and try to turning it into something great like the thing or the fly did. Ah. But anyway, um, back on track, the original and remake are based on a short story, but after looking into it, the original definitely follows, and you can probably tell that, the short story much more faithfully than the Cronenberg remake. The Cronenberg film kind of takes the loose premise and goes off on its own path, which is cool. I think that's really cool because why rehash the short story, really, when it's already been made once, for sure. I think that's really what sets this and the thing apart from the rest, is that they improve so much on that initial idea that they become horror classics and reach this whole new level, just like I was discussing. I think Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum really make this movie. Their chemistry is just kind of off the charts, um, as far as I'm concerned. Their relationship just kind of draws you in, and you really want to know more. Yeah, the mad scientist stuff and the fly transformation stuff and the gore and body horror and all that stuff is really cool. And it's really, you know, really iconic. But I think without Davis and Goldblum, that this just would not be the same film. And I really like those two together. I really think they do pull this whole thing together. I mean, the thing about Goldblum is he's less of like this mad scientist and more of kind of this really smart guy who maybe doesn't have the best social skills, but he manages to get this woman that he really loves, and we kind of sympathize with what goes on and really sympathize with his plight, and you kind of understand why he does what he does and why he goes through with all of this, and just seeing his descent when it gets worse and worse and worse, it's just so sad, and you really just do care about this character. And I think that's the driving force, because yes, you could have all the gore and violence, and this film is gross. Make no amends about that. But it would be nothing if we didn't care about Brundle and what he's going through. It really wouldn't, and I don't think it would mean as much either if Gina's Davis's character wasn't there either to kind of prop up Goldblum. And she's kind of our surrogate is she's taking the place of us, and we're really seeing through her eyes this transformation and this steep decline into madness. And it's just a heartbreaking movie. It's just great. When rewatching, I moved this even higher than I had it before. I moved this right up there with the thing. I mean, this this movie is an absolute must-see horror classic and really is up there in like my top 20, top 25 horror movies of all time if not higher than that. So, yeah, I can't recommend you check out The Thing and The Fly enough. I mean, probably everyone has seen these, but if you haven't by some miracle watched these two films yet, please go out and watch them because they are 100% horror classics and at the top of the decade and the genre entirely, I think, for all time. Okay, before we wrap up for this remake talk, I've got just a couple more that I want to get into, and the first one I'm going to go definitely because it's very interesting what happened between the two films, the original and the remake. The second one I'm just going to kind of touch on because it's a very cool film I watched recently, and I really enjoyed it, and maybe it's a little underseen. 
So first, let's talk about Night of the Living Dead. This is an interesting one. Romero's classic from 68 was part of that new wave of indie horror directors that led America back to the top of horror in the 1960s. And the 70s, too. That led America back to the top of horror in the late 60s and 1970s. Unlike a lot of the 50s films that we've talked about on this episode, this one is just bleak and violent on levels that were pretty hardcore for the time. This is my favorite of the Romero films, and the rare exception in this episode where I actually prefer the original. The idea of this remake was first kicked around by Romero due to the copyright issues um, the original film initially had. It was initially titled Night of the Flesh Eaters, and when the name was changed, a new copyright wasn't applied for, meaning it was immediately thrown into the public domain. We all kind of know that story. Because of this fact, Romero was also worried about others remaking it first. He heard 21st Century Film Company was interested in remaking the film, so he kind of joined up with them and began the remake process. Savini was brought in to do special effects at first, and he was really drawn to the film because he didn't have a chance to be involved in the original. He was a frequent collaborator of George Romero, and that kind of probably aided him that he didn't get to do, you know, the first one and maybe one of the most iconic films of all time. So here was kind of his second shot to do the effects for this one. However, Romero convinced him to direct the film as well. Now, a little note about the special effects team. They initially set out to intentionally keep the gore effects restrained. They wanted to pay respect to the original and make the film kind of artistic and as true to life as possible. Now, this is in direct contrast to Day of the Dead, which was crazy and off the charts with its violence. But you have to respect them for that. Now here's where it gets a little weird, and kind of why Savini has such a knack for special effects. Savini used as, you know, kind of demonstrations, a real autopsy, some forensic pathology textbooks, and even Nazi death camp footage as references for how to make the gore effects in this film. What a nice happy thought, you know. Just so cheery to be working on this film and that's what you're referencing and looking at day in and day out. But either way, you know, Savini always delivers and he's always good for his kind of real-to-life stuff, even if it gets a little over-the-top sometimes. It still looks real. Romero wasn't actually on set uh, for a lot of the filming and that caused Savini to struggle mightily in his in the director's chair. He really struggled to get his ideas into the film. He said he only managed to get about 40% of what he wanted in the final product, and he clashed with producers. He would refer to this experience as the greatest nightmare of his life, and the man was in Vietnam. So, so that should give you a little inkling of where he's coming from here, as he really hated this experience of working on this film. Now, Safini's film, while not necessarily beat for beat, does take a lot of the same concepts here. Um, I think it's a strong film that has a great lead in Tony Todd, and it really helps to revitalize one of the worst parts of the original in Barbara's character. And I can't preach this enough. If you're remaking a movie, I think the most important thing is to take the weak or weaker elements of a film and try to rearrange them and change them around so it's a strength. I don't know if I'd say Barbara's character is a strength here, but Barbara's character in 1968, Night of the Living Dead, 
is atrocious and one of the most infamous characters, I would say. So it's really nice to see a rewritten Barbara. Now, it's been a little bit. I watched this last year when I was revisiting 1990, um, the year of 1990 for that bonus episode. But I remember her character being pretty strong in this and a lot better than what she was in the original film. So good on Savini or whoever was in charge of that for turning that around. When it comes down to it, I think the remake is good. When it comes down to it, I think the remake is good. I think it just kind of comes down to how you view remakes and what you want out of a remake. If you like kind of the, not necessarily beat for beat, but the closer to the source material remakes, I think you'd really like this one because it does, it does like spruce it up for the modern times for sure. I'm almost never in favor of like this beat for beat type of remake, but really I digress here. The original was a must see for me. And I can definitely recommend the remake without any hesitation as well. Most horror fans are going to like that movie. Lastly, before we wrap up these remakes, I just wanted to mention Body Snatchers from 1993, directed by Abel Ferrara. And this was one where I know Horror Movie Podcast did a Body Snatcher episode, and they had covered this one. And I think that gave it maybe a little more notoriety. It definitely brought it into my eyes because I had never heard of this. There's not so much as far as the background here, but one interesting note is that Larry Cohen received a story credit and that Stuart Gordon helped write the screenplay as well. So you got some pretty good like indie horror filmmakers involved in this project. This one, I think, kind of distinguishes itself from the other two Body Snatcher movies uh, that came out earlier. I think it has a very distinct feel. It kind of strays the most from that original text or that original setup. And, you know, the main factor of that, it's being set on a military base, which is kind of, <laughs> which is kind of cool. But I really like this film. And me personally, now I know I'm not the biggest fan of the 78 remake. It just doesn't click with me. I think this, as far as an enjoyment factor for myself, stands up to the 78 film. Now, as far as like filmmaking, quality like the structure everything the cast no but enjoyment level I enjoyed this one more than the 1978 film so it's higher for me I would say for 90% of horror fans it's not higher than the 1978 version maybe even more than that maybe 95 96 but I think this one's definitely worth checking out if you've been avoiding it you know if you heard about it on a horror movie podcast and haven't checked it out yet definitely worth looking into it's really different from the other two. Is it a remake? Or does it just kind of take that base idea and go off on its own? I don't know, but that's why I kind of didn't want to include it fully in here. But I did want to give it a shout out. It is now time to introduce a new segment. And I had mentioned over in the Facebook group for this segment that I'm going to be doing every other episode. So about once a month you're going to be getting this. It's just going to be every other episode. I might be putting a new segment into the other episode. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But I did want to do this since I'm watching movies already and I've been working my way through like my backlog and doing different themes and stuff as I'm working through things, like trying to get through years in general or anything like that. Right now, big ones I'm working on is 1981. I had a long way to go, so I was like, well, let's let a listener pick what movie I'm going to talk about. And I thought that would be fun. But it's a blind pick for 
the listener, because I just put together a list of 10 horror films I still need to watch from 1981, and I just posed it out there. Hey, please pick a number between 1 and 10, and that's the film I'll be talking about. Well, what got drawn was Road Games. Uh, This was directed by Aussie Richard Franklin, and this was picked by Jason Widgington over in the Facebook group. So thank you, Jason, for being brave and being the first one to pick this for me. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to take one of these films randomly. It's kind of like a roulette type thing. So just a random film that's on my watch list that was picked by an audience member was picked by an audience member, and I'm going to do a little mini review. I'll watch it, and I'll do a mini review. So let me set this up. A truck driver plays a cat-and-mouse game with a mysterious serial killer who uses a young female hitchhiker as bait to lure victims on a desolate Australian highway. Okay, so Road Games is a really interesting one to start off with because I don't know if I get the feel that this is actually a horror movie. But let's get into this a little bit. Um, I do love this type of movie. It's similar to, like... Duel or Joyride or The Hitcher, it's that road movie. It's not necessarily in line with those other films or as intense as those other films, but that's its overall premise. I also caught a little bit of a rear window thing here, especially in the beginning and especially as, you know, our character talks to police and no one believes him, but there's that base level of rear window, and I don't think that most of us in the horror community realize just how much we mention rear window as a reference point. The DNA of that movie is really, truly ingrained in film history, and I think it's all over the place, even if we don't know it. Yeah, we catch it when it's straightforward, like in, you know, Disturbia or whatever, (laughs) maybe a bad example, but you get it. We get it when it's straightforward, but I think a lot of times people mention Rear Window, and they don't even realize how many times or how many movies it applies to. That whole concept of being a voyeur and watching something unfold, and maybe something you're not supposed to see. I really like that element of this movie. Also, a couple of notes. So you've basically got, um, and it's funny because you have Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis, two Americans, and they're Americans in the film, in Australia, by an Australian filmmaker. This is mostly an Australian cast, and we still have two Americans in the lead, which is kind of interesting, right? Interesting choice, but... They do an absolutely phenomenal job in this movie. I think their chemistry, you know, when Jamie Lee Curtis finally comes in the picture, because we have Stacey Keach by himself for a good bit of this movie, but when she comes into the picture, you really get that kind of chemistry, even though Curtis is kind of underused. But, you know, speaking of that chemistry, though, Jamie Lee sure does make it, sure does make it a habit to hitchhike and get picked up by older men, doesn't she? If we're thinking about The Fog with Tom Atkins as well. But you have that here. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler because the picture's kind of in the letterboxed there. But a couple of other notes I want to say about this is the thought of driving because Stacy Keach's character is this truck driver. And he's basically taking meat from one portion of Australia to another portion because there's a strike going on. And they don't have meat in that part of the country. But he has to drive out on these desolate roads in this kind of desert, you know, just... Any place he does stop to a civilization is kind of run down looking and kind of a little bit sketchy. So I'm sure there are parts like that and stretches like that in any country, but it's kind of something that feels very specific to Australia. And it almost feels like you're in kind of Mad Max territory as he's kind of going through these more rundown areas. I'd love for someone from Australia to kind of 
weigh in is if they've gone to these parts of the country and how it really is. And if it really is kind of like this, I know it's been, you know, 30, 40 some odd years now, but that just kind of, kind of seems to set the tone that, you know, there's nothing for miles and miles. And these people are out here hitchhiking and everything else. And it's just scary in that regards. Here's the thing though. This comes off, I don't know if this is a horror movie, it barely comes off as hitting that kind of horror thriller genre, which can really be deceiving given how it starts, because this film starts off so cool, um, and so almost Giallo-esque with how it starts in that scene in a hotel room, and you have to wonder, and I'll say this right here and we'll get off of this point, but you have to wonder what this movie could have been if it went in that direction. Because I think it could have been this, even with a few scenes thrown, if you throw like 20 more minutes, maybe 15, probably even 10 more minutes in this movie, and it's just this guy dispatching of his victims in sinister ways, I think it raises this thing up to a new level. I think it definitely goes more into that horror into the spectrum. But I'm not here to review a film as what it could have been and what I want it to be. I'm here to review the film as is. I do think this villain comes off as creepy. But he's not much of a character, and we don't really see many of his atrocities, which is the problem that I was kind of speaking of. I think it kind of races to its conclusion, and because at the beginning there's so many, like, setups and so many establishing kind of things where we're seeing this killer off in the distance, you know, we're seeing him dig a hole, we're seeing some trash get thrown out of the hotel, and... That's really some interesting stuff early on. When we get down into it, into that third act, maybe it's not quite as, it doesn't quite as deliver, and it's not quite as satisfying as I would want it to be. But that's neither here nor there, because as a film, on the whole, I really do like it. I think it's really fun. I think it's a really cool kind of premise and a really well-done film. I really do. It's just... When it comes down to recommending this to horror fans, I don't know. I would say, just in general as a film, that I could recommend this one without any hesitation at all. I really liked Road Games. But if you're looking for a straight-up horror movie, this isn't going to be it. If you're looking for The Hitcher, um, if you're even looking for like a horror thriller that is straight horror thriller like Joyride, I don't know if you're going to get that here. But there are so many interesting elements of this film that I have no problem recommending it. And I don't know how widely uh, seen this film is. If I head over on Letterboxd, it looks like I only know six people, looks like, that have even seen this movie. So that's something that's kind of interesting in itself. So I don't think it's a very widely seen movie. Um, It was, again, featured on a horror movie podcast. So if you haven't seen Road Games and you like that premise and you're up for like a you know, scratching the surface of a horror thriller, mainly a thriller, um, with some slight horror elements, and a lot of downtime too, really, (laughs) Um, then check this one out. I don't know if I'm doing it justice, but I really did like this film. So that is the first of these segments where I'm going to randomly pick, um, have an audience member or someone in the community randomly pick a number, and it'll be a preset, predetermined list every time, I'm not going to be doing any cheating here. It was just happened to be that one. If you like this segment, let me know. Um, I kind of thought it would be nice to break it up and kind of do something like this, since I am watching these movies anyway, and I'm getting through a lot of my backlog. So if you want it to stay, please let me know. Also, if you want to pick a number, you can just, you know, 
Send me a message over on Facebook. Send me a message on Twitter. Send me an email, whatever. Just give me a number. It needs no explanation, nothing like that. Just send me a number and I will keep you in line. But thank you, Jason Widgington, for being the first one to pick a number on this segment. So with that, let's go ahead and move into wrapping this episode up. Um, I do want to thank everyone for listening out there. Um, To kind of set up the next episode, this one kind of came together again like my last episode. I've been doing a lot of episode jumbling. And on the last episode, I think at the beginning I even said this was episode 12 with the one with Nathan Bartlebach. Well, this is the actual episode 12. The one with Nathan, the thing is, is I've been juggling around these episodes because the Nathan one kind of came up out of nowhere. And this next one kind of came up out of nowhere. It's still going to be in this horror remix chapter. It's going to be the last and closing episode of this. I can say that with, I can say that definitively right now. But it's going to be a little off the beaten path. So I'm going to have, I had Nathan on last time. I'm going to have the other half of Phantom Galaxy and also a co-host on Land of the Creeps, which is Bill Van Vegel. And Bill will be coming on to discuss Vincent Price and essentially giving our top 10 Vincent Price movies. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Like I said, it doesn't necessarily fit into the early horror remakes, but when Bill mentioned it, I was like, yeah, you know what? I had talked about Vincent Price a couple times on this episode, and it was kind of in my mind anyway. So if you have to be a stickler for the rules, you know, what kind of fun is that? Let's let's live a little and do some top 10 Vincent Price, because I think that sounds like a lot of fun. And just to have Bill on in general is going to be a lot of fun. So keep an eye out for that. And after that, I had ran some polls on social media to figure out what I was going to do next. Well, the results are going to be that I'm going to be diving into the video nasties and film censorship and the MPAA a little bit. So I'm going to be doing a few episodes on those. Or that's what we're going to be starting in April. Um, that's going to be the next chapter is going to be video nasties. And I'll probably do, again, something on like American criticism, like the American censorship, like the MPAA and how that kind of differs from the video nasties. But that's going to be the target for that next chapter of episodes. So hang around. There's some really good stuff coming up. As always, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I do have a Facebook group over on Facebook, and that's just Screaming Through the Ages, where you can check out and join a great community over there as well. The website that hosts all these episodes is ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. And you can always send an email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. Really always appreciate reviews or sharing with your friend or however you get the word out about the podcast. Whatever you want to do, I appreciate that. I know not everyone has iTunes. I always say iTunes review. I don't even have access to iTunes myself, so I can't even leave Apple reviews myself. So I understand that completely. Just however you want to spread the word about the podcast, I will appreciate it if you are enjoying it. With all that being said, please keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.